this week on the Back Table Podcast. Well, one good news is that we couldn't even say the R word before racism. We couldn't even really say that before. You know, we really couldn't even be in these spaces and say, well, that's the cause of it. I couldn't say that even maybe five or 10 years ago. So, I mean, that's huge. That's a huge movement forward. It seems like nothing is happening, but just being able to have those conversations in these spaces, I think that's a huge step forward because honestly, I could not have those conversations, not in a mixed audience. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable OBGYN podcast, your source for all things obstetrics and gynecology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on Backtable.com. Welcome to another episode of Backtable OBGYN. As usual, I have my co-host, Amy Park. Amy, how are you? Good. How are you, Mark? I'm good. Amy's a urogynecologist, the head of urogyne at Cleveland Clinic. I love having her host these shows with us. We have a special guest today, Dr. Camille Clare. She is the chair of the Department of OBGYN at SUNY Downstate College of Medicine. She is a native New Yorker through and through med school and residency in New York and has been the chair at SUNY Downstate for a couple of years now. Welcome to the show, Dr. Clare. Thanks for having me, Mark and Amy. We talked earlier, and we are all comfortable using first names, so thank you for that, Camille. And before we get into what you're here to talk about, which is uh, social determinants of health, talk to us about your current role, your practice, and how you got to where you are now. Yeah, thanks, Mark. I mean, I think it's been a fairly long journey. I was a clinician working in East Harlem for almost 20 years and then was recruited here to Downstate in Brooklyn. And actually, my grandmother lived not too far away from this area. She was a midwife in her life. And so I felt like this environment, it's an Afro-Caribbean population. My parents are West Jamaican immigrants from Jamaica, West Indies. And so It's like a very comfortable environment, familiar, and so it was kind of easy transition to be among folks that that seem like family. That's great, and they're very lucky to have you. Thanks. So thank you for coming on today. I think for our audience, the best thing to do is just lay the groundwork and explain what it, so when we hear the term social determinants of health, what does that mean? Yeah, I mean, I think it can be a buzzword nowadays in that people hear a lot about social determinants, structural determinants, Really what they're talking about are things that are challenges for folks, what can prevent them from accessing healthcare many times. So it's having access to good housing, places to live that are safe, environments that are safe to grow their families and where they live and go to school. Do they have access to transportation? Do they have good jobs? Are they exposed to violent environments and violent neighborhoods? So that's kind of what we mean when we talk about social determinants. They have access to foods that are healthy. That's what we're talking about when we talk about social determinants of health. Right. So the non-medical, not necessarily non-medical, but the sort of the structural, environmental, economic impact on people's lives that affect their health care, their individual or their population health, right? It can be not just the health of an individual, but of a, of a group of people, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. So that's something that I think in med school, it's very much And I'm hoping it's different these days, but when I was a med student, it was, here is anatomy, here's pathology, here's how you diagnose and how you treat a disease. 
and you get to residency. And I trained in the South Side of Chicago, which is very different from where I grew up in Kentucky. And there was urban poverty and access issues that were unfamiliar to me at the time and, and learned a great deal. Then after fellowship, I came back to Kentucky and got to work in Eastern Kentucky. And that was an entirely different set of social determinants of health that impact that community. We had Dr. Jessica Branham on the show who practices in Prestonsburg, Kentucky. And that's a really fascinating look into her practice. But specifically as it relates to obstetrics and gynecology, what are examples of how these social determinants of health impact individuals or groups in different health stratifications or classifications? I don't know the correct term is. Apologies. Yeah, no. I mean, in our field, it can impact how certain conditions show up. So rates of preterm birth, for example, rates of infertility, folks' uh, amounts of cervical and breast cancer, for example, unplanned pregnancy, for example. So those are some of the ways that in our field in particular, those social determinants can impact specific conditions that we deal with in our practices. I remember learning in residency you know, on our family planning rotation, which is something I wasn't exposed to in, in medical school, understanding how rich, poor, they have the same amount of sex, but mm -hmm. one group has a lot more unplanned pregnancies. Why? Because they have limited access to contraception or healthcare in general or sex education. And so one of the challenges to explain seems to be challenges that you might hear different things on different news networks blaming in a sense or saying certain individuals or groups are choosing to act differently when in many instances it's these social determinants of health that can have a major impact on health and that if any one of us were placed in these different situations in some ways we may have more similar outcomes to those around us as a, based on on those social determinants our housing our access to education in general and all those things and so that was something that you know when you're not around it, you don't see it you don't you don't learn about it and it was being in that practice in that environment and immersed in a place that was not the same as where i grew up where you go oh wait it's 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 not totally the same for everybody it's not just a matter of like oh here's the diagnosis here's the cure and yep. everybody will be will be having the same outcomes you know i grew up in the bronx so for example i went to medical school in the bronx at that time it kind of was called psychosocial factors we were trained to really ask the patients about those other things that they may have been exposed to. How many people lived in their home? Who do they live with? Did you have access to a gun in your home? Things like that, which now it's just called a different term, but I was kind of trained up in that way. So having that kind of sensibility came natural to me. But for many of us that didn't have that training or exposure, depending on where you went to school or where you did your training, you may not have had that. But what we don't talk about enough is where these things come from. It's not that people just choose to live in these environments where they are. That's based on structural racism, institutional factors that led people to be in those environments. Now there's another term that I'm not sure if you're familiar with that's called political determinants of health. So those are like the policies where these things come from. It was coined by Professor Darwin Dawes, and he talked about the policies that led to these things. So things such as redlining. So individuals were communities had to live in certain specific places in cities. They weren't allowed to get bank loans to buy homes in certain areas. And so in those areas, they were under-resourced. And so as a result of that, they were limited as to where their grocery stores were. Maybe they don't even have grocery stores. They have little stores called bodegas where they can buy foods. And so that's where the food insecurity comes from. So you can see it's the policies that led these things to happen. It's not like, oh, people just chose to live in these areas. 
it was relegated by policies that were instituted. And so I think we sometimes forget the top of the the top of like the causes of where these things came from, oppression, racism, you know, gender issues, all those things led to social determinants. They didn't just people don't just choose to not have access to good food or a good place to live or and that's something I've read about more recently too, about redlining and how it wasn't just like you said, it wasn't an accident or it wasn't poor choices. It was guys coming back after World War II. You looked one way, you got a bank loan, you got a house. You looked a different different way, you didn't get that bank loan. You were told, here's where you can live. And it was in laws. It was the law. It wasn't just evil bank lenders or, or uh, shady uh, real estate agents, which there were many of those too. I read stories about how real estate agents would intentionally sell a home to an African-American family knowing that everybody else would freak out that the property values were going to drop and they would all sell houses and move out of the neighborhood and he would get a bunch of sales. I mean, how how intentional and then based on racism, like right not race, but racism and how these neighborhoods were created and divided and, and how intentional it was. And of course, these things are going to happen. Of course, the downstream effects are generational, right? I mean, this is not something that you just snap a finger and solve these problems. So I guess the next question is, what are other examples of ways that these things, that institutional racism have have impacted communities like this? One of the things I spoke about was sort of like that under-resourcing, that under-providing of resources for those communities. So not only your housing, not only the, the investment in things such as safe neighborhoods, places to exercise and where parks may be available to folks. All that kind of goes into it. As you were talking, Mark, I was thinking, Even in New York, for example, in upstate New York, Rochester, my colleagues were talking about current examples where the red lighting impact in Rochester, New York, really has shown, was correlated with the rates of preterm labor or preterm's birth in upstate New York. She's a maternal fetal medicine specialist. And so that's current data that they recently looked at the data and saw that those redlining policies are still in place in places such as Rochester, upstate New York. The policies are in place or the impact of those policies from the past? Policies are still in place and the impact of those policies. And that's just one example. I mean, I don't know to what extent that's been looked at throughout the country, and I'm sure it has, but that's just one example where it's not only the policies, but the impact of those policies are still in place even up to today. So I think that that's fascinating. I went to medical school in Rochester, New York, and actually, I also have roots in Brooklyn. That's where I was born. My mom was actually, she was an OBGYN and she worked at Brooklyn Jewish. But I think that closed down like a long time ago. Yeah. But it was part of SUNY, I think, downstate. But I think that those redlining policies had downstream effects for lots of communities, including Cleveland. I was wondering, too, just listening to your talk, as chair, what have you been able to do to address these downstream effects? Because, I mean, you're not, you know, you're not in charge of mortgage rates or lending or any of those things. But like when the patients come in, I mean, we're talking about insurance. We're talking about socioeconomic status. There's a lot of variables. I mean, you're talking about family structure, how in a state system. I mean, there's a lot of different things that go into support. One of the things that ACOG, for example, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists have done is really kind of given us more of the tools of how we can assess those factors in our patients. So 
as Mark was mentioning, when we were training, we weren't really even asking our patients about those things. I wasn't. As a medical student, not not so much, not as a resident. And so we've really been trying to, to do that. So, for example, what we do here at Downstate, we do um, sort of a social needs assessment. We assess patients for their unmet social needs, and then we link them to resources in the community. We really focus on community engagement. We have in our department a health equity division, which is a non-clinical division. And what that does for us is that, hopefully you're not hearing the Brooklyn uh, noise in the background, but what that does for us is it really helps us have a closed loop referral. So we hear about these issues. We screen patients when they come in prenatal care, throughout their prenatal care. We connect them with resources in the community because we know who our community partners are. And then they let us know, well, do they get XYZ services for the issues that they have? And so that's been helpful and enable us to not only focus on their clinical needs, but what are these social needs that can impact? Can they even get to the hospital? Do they have transportation? Do they have childcare for their kids? Will that impact whether they're going to sign out of the hospital against medical advice because they have all these, even though they have all these medical conditions because they got to get back to their kids and things like that. So that's what we've done here. And that's what really we're all trying to learn how to get that information from our patients. Like they have certain screening tools, like social needs screening tools that you can ask patients like, in the last 12 months, have you ever gone without eating? You didn't have enough money, for example. I mean, I know I did learn to ask patients things like that. So, but if we're able to do that, that again, gives us a little bit more information about our patients. So we know, do we need to connect them with a social worker? or Do we need to make sure they have access to these things in the community and link them up to those actual resources. Yeah, I think that the transportation and just, I mean, we just got a little reminder to try and see the patients even if they come late because it's hard to get to the appointment and it's just really hard to logistically to make it to appointments. Yeah, I mean, it it can be a lot of different things. I know in New York, you've got great public transportation. It can take a long time, but and it's not always on time. You can leave when you're supposed to leave. And I've sat on plenty of trains for a long time and then they go the wrong way and you have to right. hop on a different train or or in places where, I, like I live in Lexington, Kentucky now, that it's a city that was built for people with cars. Big parking lots and big four-lane roads connecting different parts of town. The bus system exists. I've never personally taken the bus in Lexington and it is incredibly difficult to get around and forget you know, Eastern Kentucky. I mean, that's a whole other set of challenges. It sounds like most of what you're, not you, but most of what we can do is educate ourselves and try to learn more about the types of questions to ask. But it begs the question, I mean, the, the bigger problems to solve are systemic, are structural, are built into our system. And people say the system's broken. And I hear that a lot with healthcare, the system's broken. And I always, I always respond the same way. It's not broken. It's doing exactly what it was designed to do. Absolutely. This is the system. The system's not broken at all. It was designed to do this. This is the outcome. So breaking down a system and rebuilding, it's asking a lot of people, what, if any, roles have you taken to address the structural challenges that exist? Because it sounds like you're dealing with it on the front lines. Clearly, you're dealing with it in the education side, but from the actual structural problems themselves, what's been your experience in working with that, with those issues? It can be very big and daunting, right? It's like asking OBGYN to solve poverty, world peace, climate change. They're very big, you know, they're like unsurmountable problems. And so we 
can't necessarily do that on our own as an individual. We really have to think about advocacy. Like I just did a talk for some students this week about advocacy at the different levels. As physicians at the local level, at your hospital, Amy talked about transportation, right? Like if the bus is scheduled to come at one time of the day, but your patients can't get there on time, can you do something as simple as advocate for extended hours or different hours or nighttime schedule for your or evening schedule for your clinics and things like that, Saturday schedules? That's like at the local level. Then, of course, obviously, we all need to be advocates beyond that, like our state level, our federal level, continuing to talk to our policymakers as they're making these kind of decisions that impact our patients. So that that's super important. I believe in that. So learning to lobby and sitting down and meeting with folks, legislators. Are, are you doing that pretty often? I mean, is that a big part of what you do? As often as I can. I mean, for ACOG, for example, we have lobby day. So we go up to Albany to, you know, now that we're past COVID, we're going to go to Albany to meet with folks. We did it virtually when we couldn't get up there. I go to D.C. and meet with folks on the Hill. We have a big congressional leadership conference coming up for ACOG. 600 OBGYNs throughout the country. We all meet with our legislators by state. I bring a bunch of folks from New York to talk to our local legislators. And so, and even meeting people in their local offices, in their communities. I know where our council people are here in Brooklyn. And so I think that's super important. And it takes a lot of time, but even if you take a little bit of time, that's more than what most of us are doing when we can't get out of our offices. Have you seen change or impact from that work? Have you seen results? Because I think, you know, a lot of us, we go, man, that just seems like I'm going to go all the way up there. Because we, we've done some of that. And my wife and I, too, have, have talked to politicians we know about things like gun control. And they're like, oh, that's great. Thanks so much for your time. And they're just like, you know, they're not doing anything. It can be frustrating. Listen, it's a slow process. It's definitely slow process. Dismantling something like racism took 400 years. It's going to take a long time. I'm technically a half-empty type of person, but thank you. <laughs> I'm supposed to I, be. I find that hard to believe based on the work that you do, though. I'm serious. But 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 the truth is that you just have to eke away at it, even if it's slow. Some things we made progress. Here's an example. In New York State, we got Medicaid expansion for 12 months postpartum. In the original work in the budget, it excluded immigrant immigrant individuals, immigrant women. We had to go back and say, no, that's not equitable. Everyone needs coverage for 12 months postpartum, and we're able to get that. Now, of course, in two years, we'll have to fight again, but that's a win. So we take our wins, tell our members, and we tell our folks these were our wins, and then we fight again the next day for other wins. So if we stay lulled in the we can't do anything, then I guess we just lie down somewhere, but we can't do that. We have to keep moving forward. So I think you know it's good to celebrate those wins. I just wanted to fangirl moment here and just say that uh, regarding advocacy and public presence, like follow this woman on Twitter because I mean, I think you have what, like 25,000 or something followers. And it might be almost 30, but who's 30, counting? 30,000 followers and it is fire. It is dynamic. It is, you know, like I am an admirer of the issues that you bring to the fore. I know where you are. Putin could find you in two seconds, but I mean, <laughs> uh, but it's pretty cool because I get to see the kind of work that you're doing in terms of the bringing awareness to the issues and and also just the fact that you're involved in ACOG. You're involved in the New York OBGYN Society, which is so cool that you get to gather with all these different 
books from SUNY Downstate, MSK, Mount Sinai, and get together and and really work together because we have more in common than we have differences. I think there's so much strength in numbers. Can we just digress a little bit and tell me how did you get to social media? Well, I'm going to tell you, actually, and I've learned a lot from you, Amy. I mean, I've heard a lot of your discussions on how you can use social media platforms. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to be meeting with Amy tonight and make sure my game, my game is tight and Mark no, is going to have She wasn't nervous about and, meeting me at all. It's all about <laughs> all Amy. I have met Mark at least once. So at least we're, yes. we're le- at least we have some familiarity. But make sure you, you also follow uh, Backtable OBGYN as well on Twitter. But. And it's at C.C. Claire, C-C-A-L-A-R-E-M-D-M-P-H. And we'll put that in the show notes just for our, our people, for the one person out there not already following you. Thank you so much. Anything I else is do is trash. All people talking to me about is my social media following on Twitter. But where it came from, I was not on social media like at all. I've never been on Facebook, nothing. But when I was getting ready to take on my role as District 2 chair in 2019, I'm like, oh, my God. Maybe we were already in the pandemic. I was like, I'm about to start my term. How am I going to connect with folks? I'm not going to be able to be around people and, and get to meet them. So I'm like, all right, well, someone helped me open up my Twitter account, my Instagram account. And that was just a platform for me to connect with people. And I'm fairly competitive. I like to do well at things. So I'm like, I got to master this. If I'm going to do this, I can't be average. I got to master it. And so that just really helped me have a space that I can speak, be authentic. Hopefully I'm authentic on there and what you see is is what you get in real life IRL, right? So hopefully I'm able to share my truth in that way. I love it. It's so awesome. And I think that's what I really appreciate about social media too. I know there's lots of misinformation and there can be cyberbullying and things like that. But at the same time, for me, what I think is interesting is just, I get to follow a lot of people that I haven't met, but I really admire the message. It's pretty flat hierarchy. So I get to follow, you know, someone in New York, OBGYN New York, like yourself, you know, a chair there on plastic surgery and general surgery and glean tips. And we're having a universal experience as a, I don't know, just OBGYN, person of color, female surgeon, whatever it is. So I think it's, that's just one of the cool things about finding community online. And it really allows you to connect. I cannot believe you just started this in 2019. <laughs> I know you think I'd be doing this forever, but you know I, I like to be uh, I like to be uh, outcomes oriented. So I'm like, all right, if I'm going to do it, I, I want to do well. I mean, actually, what I also wanted to use a platform is to connect with students and trainees that may not have that black woman OBGYN in their department or have access to. We're only two percent of black women who are OBGYN, so. Folks may not have access to anyone where they go to school, where they train. And so it allows me to connect with a lot of people to help them reach their goals. They'll DM me. I'll send them my email separate. I connect with a lot of people that way. So even though it's it's in a public forum, I still reach out. You know, they reach out to me and I'm able to help them in the ways that they need help. So mentorship or sponsorship or. And all of that's addressing another social determinant of health, too, is getting doctors who are representing the people that in the past have not been there to take care of them. That mentorship role, I mean, again, like we talked about all the hats you wear, it's just like we could spend an entire episode just talking about some of the the list of things you do, but to be that mentor, then to provide support so you can help docs succeed who have patients who may not 
be used to being cared for by doctors who understand where they're from or their culture or color of their skin or, or anything that does impact healthcare. I mean, the data is that it matters, the representation matters. And so that's another way that you're taking on and addressing social determinants of health. It's, it must be exhausting. People think I don't really sleep. I probably don't sleep as much as I need to, but that's just old OBGYN habits. You know, it keeps me going. Actually, that's my most favorite part of what I do, even as a chair, like being a mentor for folks, being a sponsor, that, that's probably my favorite part of my job. That's pretty incredible. I know you do that work. And I think just having presence and representing, I mean, representation matters. It's so important. It's so crucial. And I don't know if you guys saw that JAMA surgery article about attrition in residency. And actually, OBGYN is, I mean, we all have work to do in OBGYN, don't get me wrong, but out of all the specialties, we're the best surgical subspecialties. So the attrition rate is a lot higher in neurosurgery and orthopedic surgery. Women, underrepresented minorities have a higher attrition rate. But the cool thing I think about OBGYN is that you can come and be authentic and bring your whole self in terms of like, nobody will take you less seriously if you start talking about your family or talk about your experience as an immigrant. I think we culturally embrace that. And I think it's harder in some ways to be a typical, I don't know, I, I, we're just more embrace the differences. <laughs> I think we're all on a journey, right? I mean, we happen to be around like-minded individuals. And so we tend to stay around folks that are like us, but there are plenty of our colleagues that are not on the same page. It's it's called the anti-racism journey, right? Like we don't, we're not all in that same spot. We talked about where these social factors or social determinants come from, but we're not really all on that same page. So it, myself included, we have to get there. Educating our colleagues, having forums like this podcast, because again, not everyone is familiar with these terms and it may not impact them at all, depending on their practices and, and their backgrounds. So just really helping us all get there is important. Is it part of the curriculum? In your med school, what is it? I have to be honest, I don't have any sense of, I, I went to med school where I, where I work now. Is it? I don't have any sense of whether or not it's part of the curriculum, but in my experience, like I said earlier, it was not something that I, at least not something I remember being taught specifically as part of my training to become a physician. Well, actually what we did, we got a grant, a medical education grant from APCO, which is the Association of Professors of Gynecology and Obstetrics, for, if your audience members are not as familiar and to develop some resources for faculty. Students and trainees are probably way ahead of the curve in knowing about these concepts and these terms, and, and we're not as familiar, right? Like we didn't grow up this way, it's not how we were trained. And so what we did is really use collated resources. We gathered a bunch of resources together. We created some webinars, so for at the beginning level, the intermediate level, expert level, and that'll be publicly available for folks. It'll be actually housed on the Duke website because one of our collaborators, Dr. Bev Gray is from Duke and she's one of our researchers who worked with us. And so just to have folks have access to that information, like what are microaggressions? What is misogyny? What, you know, what are some lived experiences? So, so that's available to folks to get a little bit more information. But I think medical schools, again, are equally on that journey. So from a curriculum perspective, like making sure students are in the correct learning environments that are comfortable, obviously they learn X, Y, Z in their, you know, in their first two years and then they go in the hospital and they see, whoa, it's, it may not be exactly as outlined. This is not how everyone 
knows how to talk to patients and treat patients. And, and then you, you go into residency and similarly, you know, your clinical experience is different. So I think schools are getting there, but it does take a little bit of time for all of us to get that information to our students and apply it. I think the thing that's difficult for me in terms of this stuff is there's a level of professionalism, of course, with staff and, you know, your fellow colleagues. But then when the patients do it, initially there's shock, at least on my part. And it's like, how do you respond in the moment? And then how do you support the trainees and the learners and your colleagues in that moment, too? And then it's hard to call out a patient (laughs) or your superior or something. It's really tough. I think that's why being an upstander and a bystander is important. I mean, I had a I had to call out a colleague years ago. I had an Asian American trainee and he said something just crazy and I was like, "Wait a minute, you know, like what what you know, what are you saying?" And so I think all of us and it really is dependent as you said. I've been in situations where I'm du- you're just so dumbfounded. You don't even know what to say at that moment. So I can't say we're all perfect at every single moment. You have to kind of choose when you're able to speak and speak up and you can't when you have to escalate it. And same thing for our students and our trainees. It's a challenge. I can't say I'm always perfect, but you know, we try to say if I'm going to be better one day at a time, be better today than I was yesterday. That's like one step forward. It's also as a leader, when you have a leadership role, I can say things now and I, I probably said things before I was supposed to along the way. But I can say things now and not have to worry about the same things that a student or a resident, someone who's got letters they need written and they need to impress certain people that maybe in another world they wouldn't care to impress. But, you know, if you're trying to get into a certain specialty and the one person whose letter matters the most is maybe not the nicest person in the world, it's tough to be somebody who speaks up or speaks out when it's your own personal growth. And you say, well, I just got to go through this gauntlet so then I can speak up once I'm out. And So I do understand that part of it, but it's more important than I think for those of us who are leaders. And look, based on the color of my skin, I hear a lot of things that I think people just assume things about me. I grew up Jewish in Kentucky. So when I heard somebody say something that was offensive to a different race or ethnic background, I'm like, they they probably think the same thing about me. But based on the way I look, they feel like they're, they're comfortable saying it. And that was something that I feel like I'm like incognito walking around the hospital. I've called out a number of people and say, listen, this is your warning. Okay, if I ever hear anything like that ever again, this goes to HR. This is not the kind of place we work at, and I will expect professionalism and nothing else. And they're just like, you know, a little bit shocked. But those are the opportunities, too. It's not just the people who who are personally being attacked. All of us should be offended by these by people who are treating others as less than or different than. And it is our responsibility. And I think that, like, like I said this about bullying, too. There's not tolerating it. Either you support bullying or you shut it down. Anything besides shutting it down is is actively supporting it. And I think the same is true whether it's racism or whether it's prejudice and those things. We all have prejudice. I get it. But acting on it and believing it is something entirely different. And so we have to, I'm extremely outspoken about it. I, I have a zero tolerance policy. And without being punishing, if there's a med student that says something inappropriate, you pull them aside. This is it. This is your warning in life. Okay. I'm going to do you fa- a really big favor and teach you how to not ruin your life. And oftentimes they're just so shocked that anyone said anything. Yeah, I agree. I think it's like one of those things that with time, you also learn how to deal with it better. Because I think earlier in my career, I was so shocked that it was happening. And then I would just not know how to react. But now I'm like, 
we don't talk that way about here. And then I would try and give it from the patient's perspective or say, you know, try and let people know that that's not acceptable language or whatever it is. And, you know, what I've realized navigating some of these incidents is what really hurts the trainees in particular is a patient does it, but then you didn't say anything to them about it or to the patient or try and support them in any way. And that's really hurtful. So and I, I think we all have a little bit of Stockholm syndrome, you know, when going through training, just sympathizing with our captors, our educators. And I, the way I give the advice is you can learn from everybody, including how not to be. And so just try, try and just take the best of people. You don't, you don't always learn. get to pick your teachers, but you can sometimes find your lessons. Yeah, find what you want to learn. And you just have to carry forward the things that you admire about that particular person or technique or whatever it is. And just be authentic in the best way that you can be and try and cultivate the good traits. And I, we're all struggling with this. It's not like I have it all figured out, but I just feel like that's the part of the journey too. <laughs> I like what Mark said. I mean, he talked about, you know, having a zero tolerance policy and really from like a even higher level than my pay grade, I would say that having a zero tolerance policy from the hospital or from the healthcare system that's what we have to get to. Like, we don't allow patients to say those words to our staff or our providers or our students or anyone. So not that we're going to abandon them in their hour of clinical need, but this is what we're about. This is our vision and our values. And if that's against our values, then this may not be the right place for you to, to seek care because that's just not what we're about here. So when you're a junior person and you hear something offensive and you're shocked because we've all been there, when the senior person kind of comes over your shoulder and steps in and handles it, not only do you feel safe and protected, but you also feel enabled and empowered the next time around to do that. And so you act as you want your trainees to act. And so culture is top down. It is the, if the institution allows it, we're, we're supporting it. But there's no better feeling than not knowing what to say and having someone you you respect come in and do the thing that you wish you could have done or say the thing you wish you could have said. And it'll, it just empowers you to be the one to say it next time. And so acting and leading and being that for that person. But I want to ask you about an article that's been making around, not just in social media, but in the media, in the New York Times, in the paper near where you are. There's an article about obstetric outcomes based on race. Yeah, based on economic factors so that, <clears throat> excuse me, black women, even who have higher economic backgrounds, still do have poor outcomes. So that, again, points to the well-publicized example, Serena Williams, Beyonce, et cetera. So again, many things have to happen to kind of address that, those factors that really impact Black maternal mortality and morbidity, really. And so many of that we've kind of already alluded to, speaking to, you know, implicit bias training, anti-racism journey, uh, several of those things are kind of put in place. And even if we think about, like I sit on my New York State Maternal Mortality Review Board, and when we're thinking about the cases, patients that have passed away, unfortunately, we look in the history and see were there any bias or discrimination that impacted their care. So those are some strategies that we can do to really try to unpack that, to really try to dismantle that. Sometimes these things are extremely well publicized and are brought up year after year, even if an event has happened many, many years ago. And even though, you know, it's important for us to talk about, we want to be solutions oriented at this point. Like we know these are the things that are happening. This is 
these are the facts that are going on, but how can we move towards solutions? I think that's more impactful and powerful than just saying, well, this is the problems that we have. We kind of know what they are. What what are we going to do about them now? And so, you know, this article's been making the rounds. It's, you know, both on you know, in our circles, but also, again, it's in the New York Times. This is not news to anybody who's been paying attention, but this is news for hopefully those that haven't been aware of this. But is it better than it was? You know, we talk about all the challenges. We talk about all the institutional and structural, you know, monumentally big and slow-moving institutions. Is it better? I mean, is there hope in any of this? That is the work that you and your colleagues and those countless others who are putting their lives into making things better for others? Like, tell me some good news. Well, one good news is that we couldn't even say the R word before racism. We couldn't even really say that before. You know, we really couldn't even be in these spaces and say, well, that's the cause of it. I couldn't say that even maybe five or 10 years ago. So, I mean, that's huge. That's a huge movement forward. It seems like nothing is happening, but just being able to have those conversations in these spaces, I think that's a huge step forward because honestly, I could not have those conversations, not in a mixed audience. Maybe those were conversations among my colleagues that had the similar self-identities as I did, but that was not something I could necessarily say in mixed audience. And as you mentioned, we still have a ways to go. We all learned about race being affiliated with XYZ condition. I remember there was a paper that was written that said in one of the infographics that black race was a risk factor for preeclampsia. If you see how fast I spewed out a letter to the editor, like that moment, because, you know, we're still not there yet. So we have to constantly be vigilant and we need more individuals looking at these things, being editors for journals, being on study section committees, you know, looking at these issues. And they're changing how they get kidneys for transplants now, right? Because there's like the whole GFR conversation about you got to understand that's keeping folks from getting kidneys here. So we need to change some of these these definitions of these requirements that, again, it's not race, it's racism. And that's something that, again, I think probably whether it's social media or, you know, these are things that, and this is, I was actually going to ask you earlier, but because you mentioned students are more educated. You know, growing up, I knew what was on TV, right? Brooklyn to me was like the, the Huxtables until I lived there. Our exposure to the world was very calculated by what TV shows were on or what news media. Social media opens up the world in ways that is scary as a parent of, of young kids, but also exciting in that they're seeing things that can educate them. Or, I mean, you, you mentioned earlier, earlier, but do you think students are coming in more aware of these things and more open to learning these things and more more interested in, in trying to solve these problems? Well, I mean, it also has to do with the type of students that are coming into to medicine. So as we try to be more inclusive, as we try to be more diverse, as we try to increase the numbers of those who've been historically excluded from medicine and science, you have different lived experiences. So those are the individuals, unfortunately, that are sometimes burdened by those things to say, wait a minute, and other identities, right? Other isms, other, you know, LGBTQ individuals, all kinds of self-identities. And so I think having multiple different types of folks in the room allows us to really say, well, who is not even here in the room? Who do we need to bring into the room? Who, who do we need to bring not only to the table, but who needs to build our own table? So it's like, that's part of the reasons why as we're doing better at increasing the types of individuals that are 
in our medical school classes, our residency programs, is still a lot of work to be done. I told you about the numbers for people who have my self-identity. That's where the conversation is changing. With all of us being homogenous, then you can't have those different conversations because you're not even aware that there are different views that exist. I remember when I was a third year med student, the guy I knew from Kentucky, I won't say where, so we don't identify him, but I was on rotation with him. He said, you know, I, I didn't realize you could be a good person and not be Christian until I met you. Wow. Thanks. Thanks, I think. I think. <laughs> it, he, he'd just never been exposed to it, right? Like had just never met anyone, at least that he was aware of, that was different than him in a way that he felt was okay. And whether it was the church he was brought up in or the community or the family and culture and all of the above, right? I mean, if it were, you know, we're in our mid-20s here. I'd lived a few places. It, it shocked me that at that stage in the game, this is not a high school student, right? This is a medical student. This is somebody who has graduated from college and said, I didn't know you could be a good person and not be Christian. And again, this is one example of countless where when you work with people who are different than you, when you are immersed, and that's what the data that I've read shows, that it's not just reading books, it's not just watching TV, it's becoming part of a community. Working and training in the South Side of Chicago for me was an immersive experience that allowed me, and you know, my brother's gay, going, immersing myself in the community that he was a part of for a long time to learn about those that are different than me, allows you to see people for, for people. I went, no one's blind to color, that's a silly thing to say, I, I don't see color. Then you're not looking. There is beauty and difference, and there is there is so much to, to learn, but you got to be aware, you got to open your eyes, and you got to be willing to do those things. And so I'm encouraged by what you're saying, the fact the students that you guys are getting are, are more open to that. That's not going to happen everywhere, but that does seem to be one of those things that could improve social determinants of health, of, of being able to expand the workforce, not just in number, but in, in quality. And I don't mean necessarily good or bad. I mean quality, describing the different qualities our, our caregivers can can, can look like and be like. Absolutely. Giving all kinds of students those opportunities, there's, there's also something that we're, we're not going to have time to talk about tonight, but there's something called social determinants of education. You know, not all students have privileged backgrounds. Many of us do. And I say us because there's something that's called the wheel of privilege. I don't know if you've ever seen it, where basically wherever your self-identity is, as close or far as you are from the center, determines how much privilege you, you have. So you know, my parents were middle class people. They were immigrants. So I'm a doctor. So already as a physician, I'm very privileged compared to some of my patients that I take care of. So I think as we give all kinds of students opportunities to get to medical school, we're able to diversify and expand the individuals that are going to be our future colleagues. It's very important. And I'm again, we're very lucky to have folks like you out there doing the real hard work. Like you said, though, it doesn't always have to be the big work. I think I look at you and go, I'm just going to give up now because, I mean, there's you and then there's and there's the rest of us. That's nice. But I think the point you made earlier is every little bit counts. And if we all just give a little, even as busy as we are, whether it's how we act in our clinics, how we mentor in our educational opportunities, how we treat our patients, how we let our patients come late when they've got other issues going on, whether it's how we listen to patients differently and be aware of what they're trying to tell us. You don't have to be on the capital steps every day to make an impact. You don't and I think that's where I get almost a little bit a little bit of paralysis. You know, you read about social determinants of health preparing for a talk like this and go, basically we have to rebuild the whole country. That's okay. Well that's well, we do, but we, we totally do, but <laughs> well, no, we do. But so we, we, and, and I agree, but it seems daunting. It seems too big, but I like hearing the little things that you're doing and that you're teaching and that you're saying can be done 
not just to recognize those and doing a better job caring for our patients, but in trying to dismantle them just little bits at a time. And when I, when I talk about culture change, I tell people I'm a, I'm a tugboat. Is this? I come in every day and I nudge. <laughs> That's right. Just a little bit. And hopefully in 10, 20 years, we've turned the boat a little bit. But this seems like the kind of thing that we, if we, we all need to nudge a little bit every day and just don't stop. Yeah, if we all nudge, I mean, that's called cultural humility. That's like meeting the patients where they are. You, Mark, and Amy just gave a couple of examples of things that you've done just in our short conversation of the things you're doing. You're like, I don't haven't done anything. You just gave some examples of the things that you've already done in your daily life to move things. So, I mean, it seems like, oh my God, I have to be like whatever to change these big problems. But those small things, meeting patients where they are, calling folks out in our examples of our daily work you know, that that helps move the needle. That's that little tugboat, as you said. I love that example, to just move things along. And that was kind of my last question. Like, one of my wrap-up questions was like, okay, what's the most important thing? What's the most most important next step? But I think, I'm not going to answer for you, but what I'm hearing is anything, something. Yeah. I mean, just try to do a little bit. If you can do a little bit, do more if you can. But doing something is the most important next step. And what do you, what do you think? Yeah, I was I was just going to say, I mean, we said a lot of things, but like for your listeners who are even listening and you're like, well, what what exactly is Mark talking about? What is Amy really talking about? What's Camille really talking about? What can I really actually do? ACOG has a lot of great resources on, if you just Google in, in their website, social determinants, like there's a committee of underserved women that's done a lot of work on like what we're talking about, like how to screen your patients for social determinants, how to talk to people about unmet social needs. What do we mean when we say cultural humility and meeting people where they are? I mean, it starts by just educating ourselves, right? Like learning about it. I wasn't always so well-versed if I am well-versed in these topics and things are very fluid and things change over time. So you have to keep up a little by little to, to get knowledgeable about it. And then like anything, you're not going to stay the same. The language that you learned in obstetrics 20 years ago or as your surgeons, you're not using the same techniques you did hopefully 20 years ago. You're doing robotics, you're doing laparoscopy. So many things have been updated over time. So similarly, you have to have that same approach to these issues, just like you're doing anything else, keeping up with any of our you know, innovative things in our field. Same thing. Following Twitter superstars like Dr. Claire. <laughs> like Mark Is a way to stay educated. No, seriously. <laughs> it's a way to continue to educate yourself is following you on social media. I agree. I think that what you're talking about is just like cultivating that spirit of inquiry and curiosity and wanting to do better and change and be the best version of ourselves. It's easy to become complacent. If you approach things with spirit of learning, I think it's it's hard to do, especially as you get older. But I think it's also the joy of, of interacting with all these people, patients and trainees and staff. And whether you're in an academic institution or even in private practice, like I, I was thinking about students and learners, but Amy's right. Having patients, you know, they're going to come and they're, they're going to teach you something. I mean, I could, I could go on and on about what I've learned from my patients and how grateful I am for what they've taught me about their lives. And I thought I knew stuff and then meet someone and go, oh, what a gift, what a gift, what a gift that I just, I just feel like I learned something huge from this person who's just being themselves. But you have to be open to that. Amy's point is you have to be willing to be, to be open to that. I love that, Amy. It's great. I'm just I'm just distilling what Camille said. I love it. You can just tell in terms of like when I follow your authentic presence, it's like you're, you know what I mean? You're just like trying to do the 
learn and move. And there's just something so radical about being you and authentic and and. Camille Clear 3.0, for sure. Yeah. Oh, I know. You know, you're a great example. I mean, I'm definitely a huge fan of yours. Again, you're always asking questions. You're, I mean, that's how you and I met, I think. I was talking about billing or coding. I can't remember what it was, but you reached out to me and said, hey, can you come talk? I'm like, can I talk to you about something? What could I possibly? That's being humble. That's humility. Like, not, I don't know about that. Like, tell me about that. You're like, oh, I have a podcast. I'm like, what? How do you do that? I'm like, all right, yeah, for sure. Well, we'll let you know we figured out. <laughs> Absolutely. So, I just feel like we could do this for days, but I know you're busy. I don't know, Amy, anything else you wanted to bring up? Because I feel like I have a lot to think about. This is one of those, like, once it's over, I'm going to just, like, have to sit and think for a few hours about all this after we're done. But you really are an inspiration. You really are someone who makes me want to learn a little bit every day and do a little better and... Again, you do it all with a smile on your face. Our learners can't see this, but like, just, I mean, you've, you've been smiling for the entire time. Just, you, you truly seem to enjoy what you're doing and that's where authenticity comes out. Like, you don't have to put on a social media face. This is like, this is just you and it's clearly you all the way through. So we're grateful for you, grateful for your time and grateful for all that you're doing for others. Thank you so much, Mark and Amy. Appreciate it. Hugs, loves. It is my pleasure. So fun. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to follow the podcast, rate it five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable OBGYN on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable OBGYN is hosted by myself, Mark Hoffman. And Amy Park. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess and Yvonne Ovrijinski. Show notes and social media by Jody Lenora. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Kennebrew. Music written and performed by Scott Baby Daddy Hoffman. Thanks for listening and we'll see you again next time. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests on Backtable OBGYN are their own and do not reflect the views or positions of their employers or any entities they represent.